Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Hi, I'm Toby Young, one of Quillette's London-based editors. The author and journalist Douglas Murray has just published The Madness of Crowds, Gender, Race and Identity. A follow-up to his 2017 bestseller, The Strange Death of Europe, it takes a critical look at the philosophical ideas underpinning the social justice movement. Douglas is a colleague of mine at The Spectator, where he's an associate editor, and he was the associate director of the Henry Jackson Society from 2011 to 2018. In addition to writing six books and co-authoring another three, he's the author of a play about the Swedish diplomat Raoul Wallenberg. He writes for a range of publications on both sides of the Atlantic and appears regularly on radio and television, where he's usually identified as a conservative intellectual. The madness of crowds has divided critical opinion along the lines you'd expect, but even the negative reviews have acknowledged the eloquence of Douglas's prose. In this week's Spectator, Richard Dawkins praises the book as, quote, beyond brilliant, unquote, and says it, quote, should be read, must be read by everyone. I spoke to Douglas at the Spectator's London offices. It's an old building full of journalists, so apologies for the creaking sounds and occasional interruptions. So, Douglas, tell us about the madness of crowds, gender, race, and identity. Well, um, as I say in the introduction to the book, it's uh, what I describe as my great viper. The great viper is a a weapon that the American and the British military have, among others, which is that you pull on the back of a truck to the edge of a minefield. If you fire this big missile over the minefield, it's got a huge, long, explosive tail uh, packed with explosives. And this uh, falls across the minefield and detonates all in one go. Uh, I was told about this by an army friend whilst I was writing The Madness of Crowds, and I realized this was what I was doing. Uh, The point is, it can't clear the entire minefield, but it can make it safer for other people to cross. And I have noticed in recent years, as you have, as everybody has, that there's a set of issues which just kill people when you talk about them. Uh, anything to do with homosexuality, anything to do with women, particularly relations between the sexes, everything to do with race, and absolutely anything to do with trans. So I thought, why don't I look at each of these issues, fascinating and important as they are, and explain why I think we're going mad. Um, and, and this is my best shot at it. Do you think madness is actually what's taken place, a kind of mass hysteria, similar to tulip mania, which the title of your book recalls. Yes, exactly. I mean, there are other crowd madnesses going on in our time. The obvious one, which I don't go into in this book, is uh, Green, uh, where clearly there's uh, a children's crusade, among other things, going on. But the Green issue doesn't quite fit in with, with these ones, but it has the similarities in response, which is that almost any time... The, uh, the, the claims can change, the crowd can move direction of the stampede and come at somebody who's saying what everyone said yesterday. 
And that is, that is a sign of derangement. Uh, and I try, I try in the book, to, when looking at the deep substructures of this, to explain why I think this is so deranging. And my conclusion is, among other things, that it's because we're trying to run several programs simultaneously that don't work. So the obvious one is, you can claim that gender is a social construct and people are women because they choose to be women. And you can claim that people who are trans are hardwired, hardware, definitely born trans. But you can't run both of those. You can't say that the only people who are actually in their gender identity are trans people. Very basic things like that. One question I have specifically then about that is why when you point out this internal tension, Mm. not to say contradiction, to um, members of this progressive movement, why doesn't that in any way derail them, give them pause for thought? Why, Why is the ideology able to withstand that kind of critical analysis. This is an absolutely central conundrum, uh, and there is an answer to it. Many of us presume that when an erroneous view meets a correction that you you correct. As as you know, I mean, there are studies that show, among other things, that exactly the opposite tends to happen. An erroneous view meeting its correction doubles down on the error. Um, a lot of people who are married or in long-term relationships will know this phenomenon. Um, but our assumption is generally that if, when you get better information, you upgrade your software. In fact, these contradictions have been embraced by the ideology that's pushing them and causing them. And my own view is that there's a reason for that, which is that the substructures of the so-called intersectionality movement are deeply Marxist, and that the Marxist substructure allows for contradiction, indeed encourages them. I have little interlude chapters. Each chapter, gay, women, race, trans, has an interlude between them. And the interlude on, the first interlude is on the Marxist origins of some of this. And that is the central thing, that the contradictions, as with Marxism in its original form, recognizes that there are going to be contradictions that are thrown up, but we embrace them because it doesn't, it doesn't by any means negate the truthfulness of the theory. And that's, it's one of those, those, there are several things like this in the book, that they're quite counterintuitive unless you have studied or been born into that thought system, because most of us don't think like that. We would, we would assume that a contradiction means that something has to give one or other of the the forces. Sometimes when you confront true believers with internal contradictions, uh, fallacies, uh, a mass of Mm. scientific evidence that their views are clearly at odds with reality, Mm. rather than argue with you on that turf, Mm. they'll make the move I'm sure you're very familiar with, which is to claim that logic, rationality, objectivity, even science are just tools of white privilege. Yes. They're just ways in which people like us oppress and tyrannize yeah. 
women and minorities. Yeah, that's that's it's a, it's a very audacious move, this one. And it's pretty much the last one you can do, isn't it? Well, it um, feels almost like surrender, doesn't it? It's very close to surrender. But they don't see it that way. <laughs> no. I mean, the moment that you say, I quote various people in the book uh, who say this in various of these revolutionary claims, um, various people who claim, you know, facts are racist. Um, the concept of truth is a white concept. You know, and you just say, be really careful with that. You don't want that to be true any more than anyone else should want that to be true. And you are playing with the absolute, the most explosive materials there. But maybe there are people, there certainly are people, for whom playing with explosive materials is worth it if they think it can bring about a short-term win. It's incredibly dangerous. How do you respond to the claim often made by uh, progressives that um, mobbing, intellectual intolerance, cancel culture, people like you wildly exaggerate its prevalence. Hmm. Afua Hirsch in The Guardian uh, wrote a couple of days ago, uh, today the person using the word woke is likely to be a right-wing culture warrior angry at a phenomenon that lives mainly in their imagination. Hmm. It's a figment of your imagination, Douglas. How do you respond to that claim? It's The only thing I think in it that has some truth, or you could pretend is true for a bit, is the fact that this has moved from the left to the right as a term. It's moved from being something one would want to be into something one would not want to be. Um, so woke as a term was originally, when it first came out a few years ago, was was used in, 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 a, in a praiseworthy manner. You know, he or she is, is woke. It was only when people um, realised what was being attempted here and realised this was simply a new, uh, um, or at least a newly packaged version of a sort of intersectionalist uh, um, identity politics uh, movement, that it, the, the very use of the term started to move and it became pejorative, so that people joked about people being, oh, so woke. Uh, people like Afro Hirsch have noticed that. That's the bit that they're right about. Almost nobody now would actually boast about being woke because it's become a bit laughable. Because, well, because some of us have made it laughable uh, by laughing at it. Uh, that doesn't mean that the structure of it is not, is not very clearly in place, and it is. I mean, by the way, Afro's own paper, The Guardian, has run repeated pieces about woke in a good sense until, as I say, that was stripped away from them by, by, by it becoming rather laughable as a term. Uh, but, no, I mean, would that, would that I did in, uh, um, exaggerate the prevalence of this? I think it can't be exaggerated. It can't be exaggerated when you have government after government and corporation after corporation and institution after institution in free Western liberal democracies instituting a form of ethics which is very new, exceptionally hard to oppose, and very dangerous, if not career-ending, if you even slightly oppose it. I, I wish that I was exaggerating this, but as, I get, as example after example I give in the, in the book shows, I'm not. Afro could give no examples of overstatement in her piece, possibly because I think she hasn't read the many examples I give in my book. More broadly, you often encounter the claim that no platforming, cancellation, 
in the academy um, isn't nearly as widespread a problem as people like you claim. Mm. Uh, and when pushed for evidence, mm. it's not enough for you to simply point to numerous examples of this, mm. weekly examples of this. Mm. It's as though they're saying you're, you're, you're cherry picking. Sure. Um, where, where, where is the objective evidence mm. that this has got significantly worse I mean, in the past 10 years or the, so? Uh, uh, um, of course, the tactic of doing this is to say, what you have provided as evidence we do not believe to be evidence. Um, bring us what we think would count as evidence. And I'm afraid that bar can never be, can never be met. I'm sympathetic to the claim that just looking at sort of university cancel culture doesn't quite do it. I think it doesn't. My, my, one of the ways I, I, I've come to think about this is that the only people who, who, who think this isn't coming for them are people who are self-employed, who don't work in an office. And if you don't work in an office, you can pretend that this isn't coming for you. But everybody now knows who's in the workplace in countries like Australia, America and the UK. Everyone knows that the selection process, for instance, for a new job is absolutely not to do with competency. Competency is in there somewhere in the mix, but the real issue is the identity issue. What is the identity of the applicant? And how can we make sure we get the correct balance of identities at this particular level, whether senior, relatively junior or elsewhere? How can we how can we make sure once people are in and we have suitable commitment to diversity that there is no pay differential and so on and so forth? Everybody in the workplace knows that this is going on. Everybody has stories of it going on. And unfortunately, more and more people have stories of it happening and alerting them to this and making them increasingly bitter about this game. I'd add one other thing to that, which is that the highly public cancel culture examples have an incredible effect. Professor Tim Hunt, who you've written about, Toby, and uh, I write about a little in the book, or mention in the book, is a, is a very pertinent example. I mean, winning a Nobel Prize in science, that's a real Nobel Prize. You know, it's not like a Nobel Prize in literature, you know, which you could give to any old playwright, you know, if he's suitably, suitably uh, au fait with the politics of, of the, uh, the judging panel for Nobel that year. And now, I mean, a, a Nobel Prize in science really counts as something. But it turns out not to count as much as it does if you once made a not very funny, but certainly not rude joke about women at a conference in Seoul in South Korea. And these examples, the, the public humiliation of someone like Tim Hunt, reported by an absolute nobody figure, reported by her as allegedly, in her view, having said something that could be interpreted as misogynistic, is enough to cancel out the Nobel Prize, cancel out everything else in his life, and means that by the time his plane lands, he's, he's out of every job he's got. Now, people like uh, Afra and others who now want to pretend that this monster they've been creating doesn't really exist, say, well, that's just an example. No, it's not just an example. That is something that was done so publicly, so prominently, and with so little defense of him by his colleagues, that nobody in academia could possibly not have imbibed a lesson from that. And, and this is the thing. You, you take out a few high-profile cases, a few high-profile people like that, and what it does is it diminishes the discussion everywhere. It pushes everything underground. It makes everybody compliant. 
And that's why I say we have these twin problems going on at the moment in this, in this weird metaphysics that we've created in, 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 in our countries, which is that we all now pretend that we know and are certain about things that we really don't know very much about, into which bag I would obviously put trans. And in fact, I'd put gay as well. Uh, but at the same time as that, we all pretend not to know about things everybody knew till yesterday. Men and women. It's not been a total secret, otherwise our species wouldn't still be here. The other counter-argument, often made by the very same people claiming that it's a malady imaginaire, is, well, okay, perhaps people on the authoritarian left sometimes overreact. They can be a bit too aggressive. They won't acknowledge the progress that's been made when it comes to gay rights, civil rights, women's rights, trans rights. Mm -hmm. But the reason, the reason for this slightly melodramatic Mm -hmm. performance is because if for a second they relax, if they aren't constantly pushing back, Mm -hmm. if they aren't constantly maintaining that things actually Mm -hmm. are a lot more perilous for women and minorities than they really are, then the right, the far right, the populist right, will start rolling back the victories that they've won. So that's the price we all have to pay if we're going to stay in one place and prevent these victories being eroded. Yeah, it's it's the overcorrection argument. I quote a presenter of CNN at the height of the Me Too uh, scandal saying, a female presenter saying to a female guest, well, yeah, okay, maybe it is an overcorrection, but we're due an overcorrection which there are several uh, questions that he's posing. When would you know that you've overcorrected? Who would declare that the overcorrection had happened? And when would you know you'd got back to equal? My own view is that in each of the rights arguments, they've not been able to cope with equal. And they've gone for better. Uh, I think that's incredibly perilous terrain. Um, but this is, this is, as I say, the overcorrectors want a bit of that. And their argument has, has, a, has um, one part of attraction, which is, okay, I mean, nobody denies there's been some sexism in history, there's been some racism in history, and there's been some homophobia in history, let alone transphobia. I mean, you know, nobody denies this. First of all, it's a very weird way to interpret the entire past. There's also been unbelievable poverty, bloodshed, genocide, war, peace, wealth creation, you know, why we would only look at things through this very narrow prism that the social justice movement has tried to, to, to impose. I, 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 well, I do know it's for their own political purposes. But, but of course, these things existed in history. And the argument that they want to make then is, of course, if we're going to correct it, we need to swing a bit too fast. So if gay was in the past something which people felt shame for, we must make them feel pride for it. I'm not on board with that, despite being gay. Uh, I think pride is the flip side of shame, but it's, it's like all these flip sides, that's not what you're after. You're just after equal, that's it. Neither better nor worse. Um, and there is an extent to which, and I should give examples of this in, in the gay chapter, that, that gay has been presented not as equal to straight, but a bit better. 
you know, and I don't just mean a bit sort of more fabulous or something, a bit more interesting. And I mean, you use the phrase in the book, magical elves. Yes, it's a, it's a steal from Bret Easton Ellis. Yeah, the, the reign of the magical gay elves, where when somebody comes out, they are not just to be affirmed, but to be celebrated and, and to be regarded as... Well, it's like Coleman Hughes' brilliant insight about his some of his colleagues and contemporaries at university who who, as he says somewhere, attribute some special moral insight to him because he's black. And I don't think people with experiences, whatever their skin color, they can have some special moral insight. But um, being uh, um, black doesn't give you any, any more than being white does. And uh, being gay doesn't make you like a better person <laughs> any more than being straight does. But, but gay at some point overreached to better. And uh, this is undoubtedly a, a factor in the argument in feminism as well. Are women equal to men, worse or better? Well, currently, as I try to show in the women chapter, we've settled on exactly the same and magically better. Magically better is in things like the Christine Lagarde, had the IMF's repeated reference to the idea that if Lehman Brothers have been Lehman Sisters, we wouldn't have had the financial crash. They never quite explain how they can hold in their heads simultaneously the idea that women in the boardroom have exactly the same competency as men and also have more competency and would prevent all and any financial crashes in the future. Mm -hmm. um, but we get this with each of these. We, as I say, there are examples. It's a very painful one, but there are certainly examples of running to better for black, certainly better over white, which is the most hideous train of all, and the most dangerous. And we, we are getting to something like this with some of the trans argument. It's bad to be cis. We've reached the midpoint in this Quillette podcast, which will resume very shortly. But first, a short message from our commercial supporters at BetterHelp, an online counseling service that helps people become happier and more productive. By logging on at BetterHelp, you can connect with your professional licensed counselor in a safe and private online environment according to your own pace and schedule, using secure video or phone sessions, as well as online chat and text. Some of the specialties of BetterHelp counselors include depression, anger, stress, anxiety, relationship problems, sleep trouble, and trauma. BetterHelp uses a network of 3,000 licensed therapists across all 50 U.S. states, and you can switch therapists at no charge to make sure you find the right fit. Financial aid is available for those who qualify. And of course, anything you share with the professionals at BetterHelp is strictly confidential. Quillette podcast listeners get 10% off their first month's service by using the discount code Quillette. If you'd like to know more, please go to betterhelp.com Quillette. That's betterhelp.com slash Quillette. And now back to our podcast. It's connected, isn't it, with the culture of victimhood. Hmm. The reason it's better, the reason you are a morally superior person uh, and have more virtue if you are a woman or a member of a, mon a mon minority group, it's because you've been oppressed. You yeah. are a victim. You don't bear any of the historical responsibility for colonialism, slavery, misogyny, mm. homophobia, yes. all the suffering that white cishet men 
are ultimately responsible for. Yeah. Do you have a theory about how the culture of victimhood became so prevalent? Well, it's a fascinating one, this. Uh, it's clearly changed in our own lifetimes. Mm. The move from admiring heroism to admiring victimhood. It's happened simultaneously with other moves. I mean, there are times in history when, um, when people admire being old. And there are times when they admire the young. Uh, these moves happen with extraordinarily interesting regularity. Before World War I in Vienna, we know from Stefan Zweig's memoir that young Viennese men wanted to look older than they were. They grew facial hair. They, they even affected a stoop, he says. Uh, uh, they would affect a stoop to look older because it was embarrassing to be young because people knew that the young didn't know anything. You wouldn't be gone to as a person of worth, really. And, of course, today, exactly the opposite ha happens. Uh, uh, we, we, we seek out... The, the, the young and the views of the young, as if they are uniquely insightful. And, and so these movements occur. Now, the, the movement of admiring heroism into admiring victimhood, there's a lot of factors as to why this came about. Undoubtedly, it had, it's a result of the civil rights movement struggles. It's a, of, of social uh, movement struggles. Uh, a perception that white males got a number of big things wrong and th therefore they got to eat humble pie for a bit. And, and then you get the competition within the group so that you're basically begging for, for some way out yourself. I was recently at something where a poet, a female poet who's, who's Welsh, who clearly knows how to play this game, tried to get her own pass by stressing that Wales was the first colony. And I look at this sort of auditioning and think, what a pathetic spectacle this is for an adult to behave like this. To be trying to get a bit of sympathy by the fact that I know thousands of years ago, you reckon that the Angles came and oppressed your ancestors and, and, and so on. I think it's a pathetic spectacle, but that's because I fortunately didn't imbibe this. But um, does this mean the Welsh need, need reparations from the well, English? Everyone needs reparations. As it happens, I mean, there's a very obvious way to stop the reparations, which is the some popularization of my own view on this, which is that um, reparations are necessary for the most oppressed people in history, and that's why the American government should send tax collectors to every household of white Americans, every household of black Americans, take some of their money and give it to the Jews. Um, what could possibly go wrong with such a movement? Um, but but, but this, this, this audition to be the, uh, a, a victim is also, of course, once it gets underway, there's a clever type of person who realizes that the wind has moved and that whereas we used we used quite recently to live in an era where people wanted to go up. Today, a lot of clever, smart, canny people realise that you should go down, aspire down. Don't try to cover up, as it were, humble origins. Try to exaggerate them. Don't try to think how lucky you are. Think how oppressed you were. 
I mean, obviously, there's a version of this which has come from the left's idea that victims are, are right. I mean, this is, this is, a lot of people have written about this. Just because you suffered, of course, does not make you right. You can have suffered something terrible and still be a shit. There's absolutely no um, contradiction in that. But the assumption is that if you have suffered a little bit, you have some greater moral insight or the right to speak. I mean, because this is what all of this is starting to come down to, isn't it? It's your right to speak in any and all discussion and whether or not you have the microphone. This is one of the most ugly, reductive games of all. The idea that that people should work out where in the hierarchy they sit today, who should speak over them and who should be silent. Ah, screw that. <laughs> you referred earlier to the spread of woke culture from, and you write about this in the book, from humanities departments in elite universities in Britain and America to uh, the boardrooms yes. of companies like Goldman Sachs, Credit Suisse, UBS. Yeah. And... One of the things that has helped propel this culture, which has given it the rocket fuel to become so ubiquitous, is that in the past, the small C conservatism of the business world, of the corporate world, uh, acted as a counterweight to the liberalism of the public sector, universities, schools entertainment, and so forth. Now that bulwark has effectively been removed and the floodgates Mm -hmm. have opened. How do you... But there seems to be... It seems on the face of it a little bit odd that a radical left ideology, which, as you say, has its roots in Marxism, should have found such enthusiastic Mm -hmm. allies amongst the titans of capitalism. (laughs) Yes. One of the things that amazed me when researching this book was the extent to which this is the case now. There are firms, companies, businesses, which from the outside you would assume to be grown up. And then you discover they're run by the children. Uh, Attempting things that have not been successfully done anywhere have not been successfully rolled out with a demonstrable success anywhere. Not in any business, not in any country, not in any society. And that is now being attempted to be rolled out everywhere. And it seems to me that you might at least give give a... If you're going to make every company, if if you're going to have every company, every corporation, every government running a particular program, you might have tried it somewhere. You know, might as well have one controlled experiment. But... One of the reasons why it's come in is because everything in it is, is set up to be non-oppositional. I'm, I've always been fascinated by this. I was always fascinated by the non-oppositional nature of multiculturalism as a term, a term which was very fluid and amorphous and hard to pin down. But it was a brilliant idea, a brilliant term, because it was almost impossible to oppose. What do you mean you're opposed to multiculturalism? You want unique... You, you want... Uh, some weird, you know, midwit cuckoo sort of society, do you? Uh, it took a long time for people to work a way around this set of absurd claims, smuggled in in this one term. And it's the same with most of the social justice movement. 
Who doesn't want equality? Who doesn't want social justice? What are you after? Social injustice? What kind of a monster are you? All of these things are set up to be very hard to oppose. Now, of course, they can be opposed. They can be, I think, relatively easily opposed. But only if you know that you have to go for them at a, at a similar depth to the depth they're trying to go for you on. And I'm not sure that many people in the workplace, if the cost is high of opposing and the cost of going along with it is minimal, will oppose. Add to this the fact that, yes, the products of the academy have to get jobs somewhere and there aren't many things that some studies groups are very good at getting people into. So human resources departments turn out to be a blooming, burgeoning sector. And I know some businesses where they're the only bit that's growing. Um, but why wouldn't you let them grow if they claim that they are going to solve every inequity and inequality in your business? Right, very hard for a boss to oppose that. Plus, these, this increasing feeling in a society like ours that the adults got it wrong. The reason why I trace the rise of this to the last 10 years in particular is because I think to a great extent, we all understand this historically. When the economics goes wrong, other things go wrong. We all know that from history. Um, and yet we, we pretended that wouldn't be the case this time. But my own view is that when the financial crash of 2008 happened, we pretend that because most of the banks are saved and so on, and we have all of the problems we know of the last decade economically that have come out from this stagnation and much more. But this has social consequences too. And just one of the social consequences is a loss of confidence by people who were at the heart of what would have been the system. Because they feel, and not without merit, I mean, this is always a problem, isn't it? The good arguments, the ones that are onto something, they've just got the most hideous answers. The adults did screw up. You know, and if this can be presented as some of the penance for it, then sure, they'll pay the penance, which will include ever-growing human resources departments, ever greater focus on this, turning, turning Pride Day into Pride Week to Pride Month to Pride Year, always going on about the pay differentials between men and women and different ethnic groups and so on, just doubling down on all that sort of thing. Yeah, that's, the, that's the, one of the taxes they've decided to pay. And the penance isn't that onerous. No. One of the characteristics of people who self-flagellate, you know, powerful CEOs earning tens of million dollars Quite a year, when they self-flagellate mm. and denounce white privilege, yeah. it's a penance there paying on behalf of their identity group. Yes. It's not a, there's no personal cost to them, no. and they often don't feel under, under any obligation no. to resign. What I mind about them is it's the generation coming up that pays the price. When a Joe Biden-like figure in his, what, 70s uses white as a sort of negative term, he pays no price. He's already set. He's already got his tens of millions of dollars, probably more. It's the young guy growing up who pays the price for his pusillanimity. And 
that's one of the things among my child that's so wicked about that. And in its own way, unforgivable. And one of the points you make in your book is that the enthusiastic embrace of intersectionality, wokeness, grievance culture by the establishment, by the liberal elite and by left of centre political parties like the Democrats in the US, the Labour Party here. One of the costs of that is that it fuels the popularity of candidates like Donald Trump, Mm -hmm. um, like Viktor Orban, uh, like Salvini. Mm. And so politically, it's actually very unwise and counterproductive for the elite to have Mm. embraced this ideology so enthusiastically. But when you make this point to them, when you say this could be counterproductive, Mm. you're actually fueling um, the rise of Mm. white ethno-nationalism on the right. Mm. And and, and it's not helping you politically. You know, Mm. if you do make Elizabeth Warren uh, your candidate, in all likelihood, Trump will win a second term. That argument doesn't seem to cut much mustard either. No, I, I don't entirely think it's, it's true, by the way. I mean, there isn't much wokeness in Hungary, for instance. There isn't much sort of um, anti-white, you know, sort of intersectionalism uh, um, there or indeed in Italy. I mean, the things I'm describing in this book are to such a fascinating degree an Anglosphere issue. I mean... Uh, there are a lot of these things that are, are the English-speaking world. They are elsewhere, but it's really the English-speaking world that's got it worse. I mean, to give the most obvious example, you know, the height of the Me Too crisis, the, uh, um, you know, 100 prominent French intellectuals, actresses, and so on, all women, uh, write a joint letter saying, no, 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 this is too much. You've overcorrected. And it's, it was a, it was a terrific thing to have done. And didn't surprise me at all. I happen to be friends with some of the women who are signatories, but uh, it was almost impossible to imagine an equivalent in the English-speaking world anywhere at that point. You couldn't have found ten women who'd have been willing to put their heads above the parapet. This is this is well, the mania is mainly English-speaking world. But no, I, I take a bit of the point. Uh, it, it, it's not a bad way to try to scare the social justice movement into into stopping, except for this, which is that it's it's my belief that. At some level, all of this is just about politics, and we have to accept this and recognise this and uh, and uh, try to neuter it. In each chapter, I give an example of when this really shows itself. Now, it shows itself in gay, among other things, when Peter Thiel, a Silicon Valley tech billionaire, um, comes out in support of Donald Trump at the 2016 uh, Republican convention. He says, I'm proud to be a Republican, I'm proud to be gay, I'm proud to be an American, and I'm uh, you know, proud to support Donald Trump as a candidate. He's immediately excommunicated by the main gay magazine in America, Advocate, which, by the way, incidentally, in, 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 in just in the last week, um, uh, managed to also excommunicate me. <laughs> really? Cool. Yeah. I, because I, I of was, the magazine's Yeah, I, I, um, I refused to they, them, um, Sam, Smith. Sam Smith. So they ran a piece just about this maniac, uh, British uh, extremist author. Uh, I mean, they didn't mention I was gay, of course, because if they had mentioned that, it might have damaged that. Okay, so they were, they, were, they were using a heterosexual counterpart to try to destroy the okay. person they covered for being gay. 
Um, quick sidebar, yeah. why have um, gay rights advocacy groups and publications hmm. wholeheartedly embraced the trans agenda? Because they didn't have anything else to do. They're, they are um, a great example of the old law in charities that if a charity set up to, to cure a disease actually does cure the disease, the charity will find a way to continue running. It will be a charity for people who once had the disease or people, charity for people who, who knew people who once knew people who once suffered from the disease. Why? Because at this point there are, there are jobs and pensions and, and people don't, don't volunteer up often quite large salaries. Uh, this is why, of course, we have to be suspicious with the HR people with intersectionality because it's possible that they may not solve every inequality on, on the earth. And even if they did, they might not give up their six-figure salaries and return to lives of um, uh, even greater insignificance. But, but, but no, the, 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 uh, the gay press one, the, they, they, they see it as being the, the next thing to do. And what they don't realise, of course, is that they are actually cancelling gay people. I mean, they, are, they are actually cancelling gay people. Um, anyhow, uh, so, but, but, but Peter Thiel is, is executing, the, the advocate says in 2016, Peter Thiel may sleep with men, but in no way is he gay. <laughs> they go, wow, wow. So it wasn't, I mean, maybe some of us were just doing it wrong all these years. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and then you get, it, you get it with black, obviously. You get Kanye West comes out for, for Trump and is, is denounced by Tanahisi Coates in, in the Atlantic as, as no longer being black. Well, there are lots of cases of people we can name who have had that, particularly in America. Um, you're white the moment you're not extremely left-wing and radical. And it's happened, obviously, with feminism, Jermaine Greer being denounced and, and chucked out of the Church of Feminism. And the point is, is that if, 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 if gay people aren't gay unless they're incredibly left-wing, and black people aren't black unless they're incredibly left-wing, and, and feminists uh, aren't feminists, even if they're the most famous feminists of the 20th century, unless they go with exactly the norms we've adopted from today, then let's be frank about this. This is about politics. Brute, straightforward politics. And let's take, if I may, one step further on that. Why is this so incredibly ugly and painful? And why can you predict with 100% certainty who will pick up the latest trend? So why can you guess complete clarity who will go with the non-binary stuff and who will not. The people who will not, anyone who actually asks questions, it's not a left-right thing, anyone who cares about facts and truth will at the very least stop and say, what is this actually? What, what, what exactly, before I mutilate the language and do a load of other stuff, just what is this thing you're claiming? I'm just, I'm just interested and I'm just interested. And if they have a plausible case, they can make it and I'll weigh it up. And I do this in the trans chapter very carefully, I think, of what's plausible in this and what is not. But why is it that you can predict with absolute certainty the people who will pick up the non-binary thing, who will be in complete support of the big, burly male weightlifter who used to be male until yesterday, but now says he's a female, winning the weightlifting. Why can you predict, again, exactly how it falls out? Because the people who support the latest crazy thing, in each and every case, the people who are most vocal in support are people who want to fundamentally attack and use this as a battering ram. And it's, it's an astonishing thing, this. I do it in the gay chapter about gay and queer. I'm not sure anyone's delineated this before, but I don't explain the difference between people who are gay just because they happen to be attracted to people of their own sex. 
And people who say they're queer because they are attracted to members of their own sex, but they think that being attracted to members of their own sex is just the first stage in a wider political campaign, such as bringing down the patriarchy or attacking capitalism or the cis-normative, heteronormative uh, uh, patriarchy, etc., etc. This happens with each of these things. Is black a morally neutral thing? Or is it the first step to bringing something else down? Is being a woman merely one of the two sexes you can be born into? Or is it the first step to realizing you have to smash something else? And the, the one that gives all of this away is trans. And that's why I go into this in such detail in the last chapter. If you wanted to build a reasonable coalition to advance what would be a plausible bit in the trans rights argument, you would have done this in a totally different way than saying, admit that the big bearded man with a penis is a woman or you're a bigot. Admit it. Like, make it, make yourself bow to this ridiculous claim. To us on the outside, it's, it's, it's bizarre but because we think, but surely you'd want to build a coalition. No. The aim is not to build a coalition. The aim is not actually to advance the rights cause. The aim by a proportion of people is pure battering ram politics. And it's one of just the most extraordinary things of our time that a type of ultra-political activist would try to batter down the doors of Western capitalism using transsexuals. Do you think that this movement has peaked or if Elizabeth Warren does become the next president of the United States if Corbyn becomes the next prime minister of Great Britain and Northern Ireland which you know which could happen next week mm-hmm. do we think that actually it'll we might see it metastasize and grow even more and that actually you know it's conceivable that we are only in the foothills mm-hmm. of this movement it's a it's a pseudo religion Mm. which seems to have the velocity and momentum of Christianity in the late Middle Ages. What do you think? Is it peaking? Are we in the foothills? It it entirely depends on events like the ones you just mentioned. My own view is that to counter it, people have to realise how deep it intends to go and how deep its claims are. This is not just about agreeing to the latest thing, but you have to understand this is a... This is, as I say, the most, pretty much the most audacious attempt since the end of the Cold War to come up with a new justification for what we're doing here on Earth. I say there in the introduction that it, it was inevitable that we weren't going to be the first people in human history who had no explanation for our existence and no cause to have in our lives. Now, as it happens, I don't think that everyone in the world today is causeless or, or lives meaningless lives. But there has been a vacuum left by not only the retreat of religion, but the retreat of all political ideologies in the wake of the disasters of the 20th century, some, some of which I went into in my last book, uh, in the strange death of Europe. But I pick up on that in The Madness of Crowds to say that, that this is obviously an attempt to get into that ground. And it provides not just meaning and purpose, but, yes, a mechanism for virtue and to demonstrate virtue very obviously and to find heretics and to find scapegoats and many of the other parts of it. So, so in order to get out of this, it's not going to be enough 
to simply point to its ridiculousness, albeit that should be done, or to point to its inconsistencies, albeit that should be done, but also to redirect people's energies. I think that, of course, a, a Corbyn government in the UK or a Warren government in America would make all of this embedded far more. They will demand that companies with three people should also have a you know, gender performance uh, uh, pay gap and ethnic pay gap differentials office set up and, and, and so on, and, and will become less and less productive and China will take over even faster. But nevertheless, there is also this, this question then, what should we be doing? A friend of mine was recently speaking at an American university and described to me how all of the students were asking intersectional questions at the end, in the Q&A. It was all about identity issues. And this friend said to me, I just said, why, why are you doing this? You should be working out how we live in underwater cities, how we live on the moon. You shouldn't be spending your time doing this. Now, whether or not you think that living on the moon or in underwater cities are the priorities, it is worth our societies and the people who think in our societies trying to, trying to figure out what it is that we would be doing that would be better. Now, one answer is absolutely anything. <laughs> but having done that bit of it, that is the question that is still begging. And until that bit is at least... I don't say you have to provide an answer to it, but you have to provide an array of potential answers. Or this stuff has too free a run. Because, as I say, it's got attractions. Nobody can deny that. Douglas Murray, thank you very much for talking to Quillette. Great pleasure. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to Quillette.com where you will find more content. 